You're listening to the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. I am your host, Andrew Lowen, and I am joined, as always, by Sean and Rick. It's crazy because I feel like most of the time I say not Rick lately, but this time he's here. Welcome, special guest Rick. Whoop, whoop. (laughs) (laughs) On this episode, we actually wanted to get into something that is a little controversial. We don't mean to be controversial, but I feel like there are some serious lessons to be learned from companies that are falling on hard times. Our goal really is to make this podcast timeless, even though we're going to be talking about companies that are public knowledge and uh, naming names and, and things like that. We certainly don't want to disparage any company, any company that we're uh, that we talk about. Uh, we think are actually quality human beings behind the companies, and that that have just that have run into problems, have maybe managed their company into it, uh, problems, or worked to recover from things that were problematic. And so, we want to talk about why companies go through hard times using a couple of case studies that are very relevant today or to today and also will be relevant in the future because you replace this company's name with that company 10 years from now it'll probably be similar reasons that they're going into or having having trouble so all of that said maybe we should frame what it is that we're discussing and what kind of prompted this podcast so there's a couple of gaming publishers which on the outside look very successful but they're running into hard times. So three of them is Grimlord Games, Steep Games, and recently Mythic Games has run into issues. They've got a 40% clearance sale at, as we were recording this podcast, getting rid of their stock because they've run into issues. This conversation has really sparked off a, a comment on one of the Board Game Revolution community posts where some, someone was lamenting their frustrations of having a $350 pledge that is now not being fulfilled and they were sort of inquiring, can they get their money back? And which, Andrew, you you piped in and kind of gave your two cents. And I think your your comment got nearly 100 likes and quite a few comments. So it got a lot of engagement. So we kind of figured this might be good to sort of dig into and kind of expound some of the things that you, you cover, which I suppose aren't obvious to everyone looking from the outside in. But obviously, being your own publisher with a successful title on your belt, you sort of have an insider's perspective on things that can potentially go wrong when you you know scale up, so we wanted to yeah. dive into some of those, provide some some warnings. I think we probably should mention that we don't have all the information, so we we are also looking from the outside in, trying to work out what potentially could go wrong. So this a lot of this is going to be quite speculative, but um, I know Andrew, you did say you had a contact from the inside one of these companies that was able to divulge some information. So it's not completely arbitrary. Um, we do have a contact yeah. that we can speak speak into, but actually multiple contacts. I'll say that I feel like a newscaster on this one because I have multiple sources that are inside sharing firsthand experience with me, but I'm not going to name any of them or what companies they work for or used to work for. Sure, because we didn't get their permission, that. and right. uh, we, we, it would probably be better if coming from the horse's mouth, so to speak, rather than through you. So um, right. I'm sure if they if someone from one of those companies is listening and wants to speak with us, we'd be more happy to have have them on to sort of discuss these yeah. things. And again, you know, my goal is really to frame in a in a positive light. I certainly don't want to disparage any anyone that's trying hard. Mythic Games is like as of today is a real a real hot topic because of a decision that they made 
really to try to stay in business. My contacts all speak very highly of the leadership in Mythic Games as far as their quality as human beings. And they have said nothing negative about that, but just as simply, or even their time there, but, you know, simply as a kind of a, a matter of, of watching from the outside and what their experience is like, and not even, they didn't even say anything, but I just see they're working there and now they're not and, and other things. It, it gives me information, you know, and then of course, much comes to public light later and is, I just really think it's worth talking about. So another thing which makes it relevant to, uh, I suppose, particularly you, Andrew, is that you were approached by Mythic Games when you were developing deliverance and they were interested in purchasing the ip and publishing the game mm -hmm. am i correct yeah so they 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 we did have talks about publishing the game and um you know it was one of those things that eventually i elected to move forward myself um i actually had somebody who wanted to invest into deliverance at that time other you know in, in addition to mythic uh which that kind of fell through as well so the only investor in the mythic or I, i'm sorry into deliverance is me, myself, and I, and, you know, family and whatnot. But, um, and then of course, many, many backers, thousands of backers. Yeah. And, and so, um, but yeah, it was, it was very interesting. So I have, I have nothing but positive things to say about my interaction with uh, Leo over at Mythic Games. He's the kind of the head behind there, but let's, let's talk about what Mythic did. So Mythic Games has published many successful Kickstarters. Uh, their biggest one is Darkest Dungeon. That raised over $4 million and is one of the largest Kickstarter projects ever. You know, it's certainly in the top, I don't know what it is. Um, I don't know. We'll just say top 100 so that I'm certain to be correct. It's the 16th most funded game on Kickstarter. Okay. So they made $4 million on that. Then, uh, you know, later on, they did uh, campaigns for Rainbow Six, uh, the intellectual property. Their game was called Six Siege. And that raised, I want to say, at least a one and a half million dollars. So uh, they they definitely did well from from the outside. You know, Six Siege had over ten thousand backers, raised one and a half million dollars and and some change, and they had pledge levels that were as and these are all publicly available facts. You know, nothing on the inside that are you know uh, shocking. But for the Six Siege, you had the smooth operator pledge was two hundred sixty nine dollars US, and that, you know, not, not only was it an expensive pledge that gave you lots and lots of content, what actually happened was they came to backers and said, look, we basically, they didn't have enough money to fulfill the campaign unless you put in an extra amount. And, you know, the, the extra amount varied based on the items that you purchased. Would and it range. wasn't just a little extra amount. It seemed to be like almost 50% of the original pledge. I want to say there are some people that were, that had to pay a total of like $700 to make this happen. So remember, this is not including the shipping and, and everything that they charged um, as a result of the pledge manager. So uh, GameFound responded uh, because they used GameFound as a pledge manager by shutting them down so that nobody else could uh, late pledge, uh, which I'm sure was not, uh, you know, and that might have been resolved by now. but. Um, you know, I'm not sure, but the, they asked fans to pledge extra. They did. And they, I want to say like 43% of the fans or of the backers of that game pledged for, uh, you know, the extra amount so that they could actually print and allegedly deliver 
this this game. Now, what they said was anybody on the Kickstarter that didn't pledge the extra amount uh, that they that they needed would not actually get their stuff. So this, of course, sparked quite a lot of um, you know back and forth in various communities and not a few unhappy backers. Um, so there were there were many many opinions shared, and so in addition to this. There were there were uh, so Mythic did not go out of business, but they they let they laid off all of their U.S. staff and they you know had to lay off a a, a number of you know uh, staffers to to remain floating. They also jettisoned many of their other intellectual properties. There was uh, gosh I remember playing this game with the Mythic team at Gamma 2020. It was like a monster battle arena game. And they actually jettisoned that that intellectual property, sold it to Simon, who is now uh, marketing that and selling that. And so they they're selling. They've sold several intellectual properties that they owned, probably to kind of right the ship. And they are, um, you know, asking their various backers of their campaigns to add additional money so that they can get get the campaigns fulfilled. That uh, and then in in addition to that not related to mythic games we have grimlord games who has raised several probably closing in on two million dollars on kickstarter for their various campaigns i want to say village attacks is their top uh top game which raised like half a million dollars maybe four thousand backers or so um then we have steeped games which is um known for a game called chai and there was uh, which they delivered um and then there was uh, another company, let's see, or another game that they made called Chai T for Two, which was a two-player version. And that actually did not get released. So they they went under and were not able to deliver that game. But Myth- so, Mythic Games is, out of all these companies, is the largest. They are currently the seventh highest grossing creator in the games category. In Kickstarter's history, so they're they're up there in the top ten, you know, the, like the most gross Kickstarter, yeah, campaign. So the average pledge is one hundred and fifty dollars. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's a pretty 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 large company to to have these sorts of issues. They've grossed more than Isaac Chuck Child. Oh, really? More than Frosthaven. Yeah. More than Frosthaven's creator. Wow. They they did just announce <clears throat> as of this podcast twenty four hours before they are going through with Six Siege. I guess they said they received enough money, but they're they're still having issues with their pledge manager. Yep. And uh, oh, and in addition, I want to mention one more. There's uh, Steam Forged Games. Is uh, they just went through um, a round of layoffs. They laid off about twenty people. They recently launched a Monster Hunter World expansion, and uh, that's rolling on Kickstarter as we record this podcast. Uh, Monster Hunter World it brought in a ton of money for for Steam Forged. Um, they had had like 20,000 backers. It was a really big game and probably like really huge uh, miniatures and and that kind of thing. You know, they, they've done Elden Ring. They've done Dark Souls. They're a huge, a very successful company. They've done Resident Evil, Bardsung, a lot of very popular names that people uh, that people would know. I believe that the Critical Role podcast was the um, was done by Steam Forged as well. So it's like the miniatures, not the podcast, but uh, Critical Role. They did the miniatures for for that, and 
so they're they're not a small company either, but they they recently laid off 20 staffers as well. And so and I think actually, you know, Steamforged is not as far as I know in a financially, you know, uh, poor position or anything, but they they're making moves to keep themselves financially strong and it's indicative of of problems that I think we can um, talk about, it, you know, that that affect tabletop companies in general, and you know how how to you know maybe will actually serve as a model for how to kind of right the ship if something goes wrong. And maybe the the concept here is really that I want to talk about is catastrophic success. It's a uh, something that I think is more probably more relevant than I originally thought when I came up with this. This uh, or when we we I, we recorded a podcast a long time ago where we talked about like your episode the four five outcomes. Okay, yeah, episode five. Wow, for 120 episodes ago, still relevant. Catastrophic success as a possible outcome of your Kickstarter campaign, and I think that certain companies they experience great success, and there are twists and turns. I mean, COVID was a huge twist for the board game industry and fulfilling games on Kickstarter and all the shipping crisis and whatnot. And that forced many companies to adapt and many uh, companies, you know, that experienced great success, you know, when you had to buy, you know, when you had to ship uh, something in one container, it went from 6,000 to $30,000 for, for a container. But when you had to ship something, in, you know, that was very successful, your containers, you had to get like 20 to 40 containers for something that, it is just a massively compounded uh, problem that a lot yeah. of companies just didn't survive. But many, even to this day, are still dealing with the financial fallout from from those days. So let's let's uh, let me stop talking here and let's kind of talk about where my maybe my my comment, Sean. You want to start to frame why I wrote what I wrote or in response? I don't know. Yes, yeah, so maybe if you want to detail the process of deliverance, will help people understand in terms of budget how much wiggle room you have. I think from what I could gather from your comment, when you sort of detailed what was spent on what with the amount raised, people were sort of shocked by how little the profit margin was. So I don't know if you want to chronicle the details of the funding. I think that will help people understand. So when you see these huge numbers, well, the profit margins could be quite tight and then you're, you're compounding problems because you're adding more inventory, which means you need more crates, larger like it, there can be a problem when you get into larger numbers right yeah so i what in in the post that i made which actually i reposted in the crowdfunding nerds community if you were to search for catastrophic success inside the crowdfunding nerds community you would find a post from me at some point if you uh, search through there uh where i think I in the show notes all of this okay yeah that, that would be a great idea so in that post i share that we raised just over five hundred thousand dollars so far for for deliverance 314,000 was raised on Kickstarter. About 187,000 was raised to be a backer kit, which was like my my pledge manager. And then after all of the fees that Kickstarter backer kit and Stripe, you know, the payment processor um, took out, we were left with about $460,000. This money didn't all come in at the same time. We had around 290,000, it was like $288,000 hit my bank account three weeks after the Kickstarter campaign ended. So the rest of the post well, part of it's just about explaining where that money where that money went. So I first paid off debt incurred for art and graphic design, and and you know I had a developer helping me, working you know 10, 20 hours a week that I was paying before we actually even went to Kickstarter because I just didn't have time to do everything because 
you know, I have this, this business to run, which needs to take the majority of my time because it's all of the money that comes and allows me to feed myself and the family comes from this business, not, not from deliverance. So deliverance after $314,000 raised was a very expensive hobby. Still, we first immediately paid off all the debt. We had about $60,000 in debt that we incurred. Um, and just 48,000. I, I could stop you there. I wonder how many of these co- companies aren't paying off all their debts straight away. Maybe they are incurring debts into the next campaign. Do you think that could be compounding problems where they aren't really? Yeah, you know, t- I'll say that that it's it's like the fifty dollar expenses here and there that get you. It's not that oh you you have you forgot to pay your ninety thousand dollar credit card bill. It's not that. It's like. You know the the money gets that gets eaten away here, there, and everywhere with bills that you don't really expect, but kind of creep up on you after a while. For example, Mailchimp. You know we're paying sixty dollars a month for Mailchimp. We're paying you know up until very recently where we were we were on Slack. We were paying sixty bucks a month ish for Slack. Just just a little bit over that. We have uh, like eight team members on on Slack, and then uh, you know other things. And I feel like for board game companies, people that raise this amount of money, and then it just sits there in a bank account, you're only seeing that decrease. You're not seeing, it's not yeah. really cash flowing. So it's really, really easy to to let that money just kind of dwindle away a little at a time. And so as a, as a creator, I think it's, it's really important that you would defend that lump of cash as much as you possibly can from those dwindling, those little fees here and there. And I think interest is, it can be a really big deal. If you, Mm -hmm. if you would rather have money sit in the bank and you know, that, you know, I'm just, I I don't, I think you should always pay your credit cards off, but if you run into a situation where you're, you have debts, I think it's, it's important to pay as much off as you can to control those things so that, you know, you're not dwindling, but also those little fees here and there that like kind of surprise you. You know, one thing also I'll say is that some companies really had, uh, I think I want to say Grimlord Games. One of the reasons they cited going out of business was how uh, because of Brexit, the British pound, the strength of the British pound against the dollar was weakened and China, you pay in dollars. So I'm very, fairly certain that Grimlord Games lost like 20% of their you know, effective money in the bank just due to inflation and the, you know, even a currency exchange. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So the, the exchange rates, that's what I was looking for. Mm. And that's why they cited, that's one of the reasons they cited going out of business actually. So money sitting in the bank, if it's not doing something for you, it's, it's becoming less valuable over time in general. So, Yeah. yeah. So yeah, so we we paid off our debt, which was about sixty thousand. I had forty eight thousand out of out of the fifty thousand I was allotted on my home equity line of credit. Then I had about ten thousand. It was like eleven thousand dollars on a credit card that was a zero percent interest for twelve months credit card. And by the way, I think that these credit cards are terrible uh, in general. But if you're going to get paid a lump sum at the end of a Kickstarter, that you know, and you want to take a risk, I'll say I risked a lot. $60,000 is a lot of a risk for a first time project. So that's, but I, I just wanted it to be right. I was, we, we talked about it as a team and my wife and I, and we said, we're willing to do this and, and that's what it takes to, or that's what it took to get the Kickstarter. So 
uh, for this particular project. It's a very large game. So anyway, we paid that off. Then in regard to debts, we had marketing expenses. So I, you know, obviously I run a marketing agency, but with, you know, at, at the time I was like, why not try Backerkit? And of course we had uh, Board Game Geek ads and we had Facebook ads running and, and everything like that. And after, you know, after everything is all said and done, uh, we had about, I want to say $40,000 in, in marketing expenses that we had to pay back. Um, I'm, I'm including both like the, the overtime, which was like, you know, we would pay Facebook and Facebook would charge our card. Like every $900 it would, you know, that accrued, it would, it would charge. Uh, we had, uh, you know, $12,000 backer kit. Um, yeah, we had like two of those, like eight thousand, ten thousand, and twelve thousand dollar uh, fees that we were hit for. We were hit on uh, Board Game Geek. We had uh, Babylon B that we did ads on, and all of that was like you know about forty thousand dollars together. So we tried lots of stuff. I definitely will do things a little different next time. But then you know, kind of moving on, the cost for the art and finishing the game and everything was like ninety thousand dollars. It was it was a lot of of stuff. And, and that's really an estimation. That's kind of the one that I, that I ballparked the most. I could be off as much as like, you know, 20 or 30,000, in which case, you know, the, the money that we had at the end would be more than 40 K, but I just haven't gone through and looked at, at everything. Yeah. So basically when all, when all is said and done, deliverance netted, or had like profit of 40,000. Right. Yes. Which is so, like the salary of one person <laughs> right <laughs> and you know i will say that uh not only do we have forty thousand left over but we also have about it's like 1800 units of deliverance left and uh, at the at the time uh, as of this podcast recording we have around 200 units of each add-on remaining okay and, and, uh, and all, so those, that, all those units you have to pay to store or you're in a store them at your house so there's there's other costs associated around those units right because you have to pay to ship them and Right. So I estimated we, we would make about 200,000 off of all of those units um, without those expenses considered. But if okay. we did, uh, you know, with those considered, we probably spend like a third of the money that we make on marketing and storage and uh, that kind of thing. If we sell on Amazon, you know, 25% of whatever amount we bring in is going to actually go to Amazon. So, so um, when you sell all that stock and you include the profits of the campaign, you're talking roughly around 140,000. About a, about a, I'd say 180,000. Okay. Um, so it's it's definitely enough to make another game, not be in debt, and have a have a company that you know that I can, uh, you know, I can employ other staff. So like we brought on my artist for for Deliverance. He's actually full works for me full time. We have a game developer that works for me 20 or 30 hours a week and or 20 to 30 hours a week. And uh, because I just don't have time to work on this all the time, because again, my main business is the crowdfunding nerds and uh, next level web. That's what pays the bills. So um, for now, yeah, for now. Yeah. I don't, I don't take a salary from, from like my low end games corporation. So yeah. And then, you know, the last cost or, you know, or so, the last two costs, the major costs, our total cost for manufacturing, about $140,000, including the miniature molds and, you know, all of the things that we got. And then the freight across the ocean and the final shipping to backers, about 90000 
So we spent $420,000 to do all the things and we made 460,000. They, (laughs) a lot of people think that when you make $300,000 from a Kickstarter campaign, that it's like the land of milk and honey. A lot of people listening Mm -hmm. to this podcast would love to make $300,000 from their first Kickstarter campaign. It would be incredible. You know, and I, I don't, I'm not trying to minimize the success that, uh, you know, deliverance has had, but it, it's not, it's uh, like when you get there, you, the money goes places, you know, if, if you're doing what you need to do to deliver a great product and that kind of thing, you, the money comes from not, not just the Kickstarter campaign. It shouldn't at least, uh, it should come from the extra stock that you have left over that you sell and ideally distribution where they would buy games from you. Retailers would sell those games and distribution would want to buy again from you. Um, that type of thing is like, in essence, it, and of course, direct sales from your website, from Amazon and things that you control. That is a cash flow. You need the cash flow in your business. And if you're make, if you're doing a great Kickstarter once a year or a couple of times a year, and relying on that money as the main source of revenue, then it is not super duper stable. I think there are a lot of, or there's quite a few issues that I see that are in play right now that are that are causing these situations. Um, for, first of all, you know, in order to get a good deal on your product, you have to order quite a few, you know, a large quantity of it. And to get that good deal to, you know, to get, you know, to save yeah, money. Like- manufacturing quantity economies of yeah. scale right yeah so so you know you're sitting here and you're ordering and you also need to order extra units anyway in case you know things are missing or broken or whatnot because most of these companies just do one big bulk uh make and then they go on to the next project and they won't be able you know to go back and remake things for you on demand so i can see that as an as a is a you know from a cost perspective you are spending you know you're gonna have to spend a lot more money to get these units to save money on in the future and i think that the issue that's going on right now, especially with um, you know what's going on with the economy around the world, is that right now most people are probably when they're doing their Kickstarter, especially for the board game industry because they're all the parts. You're pretty much breaking even almost. It's not like you're not you're like like Andrew is saying he only did forty thousand um, dollars, and that's him by himself. Like and then outsourcing and hiring other people. But if you have like a team of ten people, how would you pay them? I mean, there's no way. And then, of course, you're relying on the extra units you have to sell after the uh, the Kickstarter um, is done. In the, in you know, and I you know, and a lot of times, like you know, for example, I know um, you know, there's a speculation, but in Mythic's case, they're you know, they're still got a lot of product they haven't sold. I mean, they're putting it on sale because they haven't sold it. So you have to sit on you have to sit on this product that you're hoping you'll sell. But you may not sell, and then of course you're paying storage fees and and whatnot, and then you still have to ship it. So I mean, you have all these extra units that are supposed to bring you extra money, but they may not. Also, this um, goes back to where we had our prediction episode for the year. I I, I believe, and I will have to go back and listen to it because I I don't recall, but I believe I said that the pricing will um, costs will go up and backers will go down, and I believe that is happening right now. You know, these board games now, like for example, Apex Legends just it just came out. Um, a Kickstarter, and they're all in is about two hundred and fifty ish dollars, whereas opposed to maybe a year or two ago, all ins were like you know, one hundred and fifty. One hundred and twenty. So, and then of course the backer count is down because of it, because these are more expensive games, and I think that's also playing to effect as well. So we're 
where a couple of years ago, if you made the game and released it, you'd be ahead by a good amount. Now you're breaking even until you sell extra units after you've got them made. And like, um, you know, and again, in speculation on Mythic again, you know, they, when they first started, they, they made what, 4 million off their first game or something. Well, it, was, it was, uh, their big game was darkest dungeon. It was one, it was, uh, not their first campaign, but they've had like several campaigns since then. Yeah. But that was like the big one. Yeah. And the thing is, is when you do that, when you make that much money, you like, Oh, I need a team to, you know, to compensate to, because we have so much work we got to do. So you hire all these people. And then of course, as you, as you keep going, they're still with you, but then you're not making as much as you keep producing more games. And that's why I think is happening is where, the profit margins were enough, you know, a couple of years ago to cover these costs, and now they're not. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, all these these companies are starting to lay people off and let people go. And I think it's just because there's no profit right now in the game market because of the costs, inflation, and all of the other things that are going on right now. What I did, I planned on playing the long game. So if I wanted to make the most money from Deliverance and kind of profit from it the most because I I don't, you know, draw money from it. But if, if, if I wanted to build that metal garage building that I probably need because I have so many children, I'm going to have so many cars. Then what I would have done is instead of making 5,000 units of deliverance and 2000 units of every add-on, I would have made uh, probably like 3,500 units of deliverance and saved um, a lot of money in shipping and in manufacturing and that kind of thing. And I would have been able to pocket more. But just that little extra, you know, maybe probably twenty-five to thirty-five thousand dollars is what I would have saved overall on shipping and everything. If I were to save that money, I can of course take that and spend it on me or whatever. But what I elected to do was invest that into um, games. So I purchased more games, and and as you said, Rick, kind of that economies of scale thing. The first games that I bought you know, the first thousand games, let's just say they cost 20 bucks a piece. If you look at the first thousand, but then the, you know, if I get 5,000, then my last quote unquote, my last thousand games are only about $13 per game. Another thing that, that you've done is that you've started to really build your brand and diversify what deliverance mm-hmm. is. So you've sold t-shirts, you're now getting into video game development. You have two video games that you're working on. And I really feel like that's where you're going to start seeing this kind of snowball mm-hmm. effect, whereas you're developing more product and sort of diversif- d- diversifying the d- deliverance space, you're going to start seeing more profits coming in. It's almost like Marvel, right? Marvel makes its money through these films, but mm-hmm. you get, go to any store, it's going to Marvel everything. There's like Marvel underpants, yeah. there's like Marvel spoons, there's Marvel... Marvel Build-A-Bear, exactly. Marvel board games. So they're they're getting... That's how they're making their money, by just sort of expanding their brand. So I think that's maybe something for listeners to keep in mind is that you need to build a brand that can transcend the board game space, essentially, that can mm-hmm. be monetized in other ways. I think that's really what you're doing through your whole crowdfunding experience. And one thing I was listening to an interview today by Gabe Newell, from a couple of years back. One thing he was saying is that Valve, their gaming company, has grown in profitability by 50% each year. So I was like, what? Wow. <laughs> Just crazy, their, their, their growth. And really, a company that started off creating single-player video games has a whole ecosystem now that they've monetized, not just the Steam store where people can buy games, but digital items within the games. They've created economies within economies mm-hmm. that they've monetized. And now they're the sort of behemoth 
in the gaming industry, it, it took a while to get there. The point I was bringing up is for people to think of the long game and see it as an investment that you're building a an empire essentially, and that there isn't a, a sort of maybe like a shortcut to success, uh, not yeah. not a legal one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know, it, it's uh, for deliverance. That is kind of the route that I've chosen to take because it is the type of game that people can can get behind. It's um, in a way, it's almost like a, I'll, I'll put it this way, like a lifestyle game. It's not exactly like D&D, but if somebody really, really likes it, then they're going to buy it and every expansion and be, you know, that's that's what I think is that they they really like this this world. So it's, you know, like Steamforge is doing with Monster Hunter, people that really, really, really love Monster Hunter are going to be, it's the easiest buy in the whole world to just jump into this this next Monster Hunter game that they, the Iceborne game. So playing the long game, I guess, is really the point of this particular segment. When you play the long game, you have extra product that you need to sell afterward and you need to have a plan for how to sell it. Don't just say, oh, I'll just do marketing and that'll sell all the games. There are so many people that have games in their garage that they just throw to the incinerator or sell to you know deep discounters um, and, and just like liquidate you know, for 10% of what the value is or something just to make something off of it. And, you know, if I, I really think that it's very smart to have a detail, more detailed plan and get advisors and people that have sold stuff that can help you. Um, you know, we love consulting with people before you have a garage full of games that you can't sell. You should have a marketing person that can help you uh, make sure that situation doesn't happen, you know? Um, or that you've planned as much as you can. Um, Another thing, if I jump back to Gabe Newell and what he was saying, because it's on my mind, he was saying that they made all their decisions based on their customers. So every decision was customer in focus and trying to make sure that they had the, the best experience possible. And they sort of had this attitude where if you focus on the customer, the profits will take care of themselves. So they really are completely customer focused. And I think that that's key as well, is keeping your community engaged excited and satisfied it's what's going to build this your reputation build your brand and help you to leverage yeah. your 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 funding from project to project yeah definitely definitely communication as well from what i've seen from a as a as a buyer or a backer of kickstarter um you know at least once a month i need to hear from somebody otherwise i start freaking out <laughs> and so being able to con you know contact your you're following at least monthly, you know, every other week or whatever, just to give them an update what's going on. Um, even if there's nothing going on, say, hey, just want to let you know, we're, you know, this is still pending. There's nothing going on. That way, they're they're still in the loop, as opposed to where some of these these companies that we're seeing, where people are getting laid off, they're also not communicating. So people are just going crazy because they have no idea what's going on, you know, with the status of of their the project they backed. Yeah, yeah, I think that you know, regardless of what happens, you need to continue communicating. I, it's it's so important. So now, um, in regard to Mythic, let's talk. Let's get specific about Mythic. So they had a really really successful Kickstarter's, like several in a row. And I believe that the one that was their catastrophic success moment that started to break them was Darkest Dungeon. Darkest Dungeon had almost thirty thousand backers and made over four million dollars, and that was hugely successful that point you're able to like scale up the team because you know you need you need to scale up the team you're you're able to start working on multiple IPs you you have cash now that you can invest into your company 
to do really great things. And so they acquired the uh, uh, Six Siege. They um, looked, actually, that's when they kind of looked to purchase Deliverance. Uh, they, they wanted to, to buy the right so that they wouldn't pay a designer royalty, but they actually wanted the, uh, the game. And that, that was kind of what, what, our, what our discussion was about, just keeping it general. And uh, they re- released another really big one called Hell the Last Saga, which had 17, almost 18,000 backers. And then they struck, I mean, that, that was a very successful campaign. And then they just exploded with Darkest Dungeon. So they had this, this uh, you know, very, very successful run of games and they scaled up their staff probably. This is where I'm just, I don't know, but I can say, I think that this is what happened. So the rest is, the rest of what I say is going to be speculation. And that's my opinion and not, necessarily the fact but just as an outsider looking in i think this is probably what happened and anybody that's listening you want to probably pay attention for your own sake in case you experience uh this type of success you know just be mindful so the rest of their games there you know six siege was another really big one it had eleven thousand backers after their big darkest dungeon twenty eight thousand, almost twenty nine thousand backer campaign they had a super fantasy brawl game that raised uh, like money from 8,200 backers. Then Six Siege, which had 10,800 backers. Monster Apocalypse, 6,300 backers. Anastra, which had 5,500 backers. Nothing that like equated to the success of their Hell of the Last Saga and Darkest Dungeon. So by all rights, it was very, very successful from an outsider's perspective. But from inside, what I think is that it was not enough money to continue all of that cash flow that needed to go out uh, the door to pay for the staff and for all the intellectual properties that they were working on, all the graphic design assets, everything from their teams. And it was unsustainable. Coming back to this, Gabe, Neil talks just because it's on my mind. One thing you're talking about there is sort of rigorous staff hiring process. Mm -hmm. And Valve is unique is that there's no hierarchy. So everyone is sort of just left to their own devices. So they have to employ people who are very much self-motivated and you can who are willing to work in a very diverse space and do what needs to be done to get things off the ground. So they put they put a huge emphasis on hiring talent because obviously <laughs> um, they're going to be having that structure sort of demands people who are going to maybe go above and beyond what the Call of Duty might be. So I wonder yeah. if that has a problem to do as well, just maybe poor hiring decisions that kind of crippled the company. So yeah. I think hiring is something that should be done with a lot of precaution. And I'm not saying that this is the instance here, because I'm obviously ignorant of all the details, but I just think the general rule is a hiring could also make and break a company. So that should be done with a lot of forethought and mm-hmm. planning. Yeah, you know, actually from, from my own experience, um, I hired my first employee in 2014. And in 2015, I hired uh, one more. And by the end of 2015, I had um, five total employees. And it was, you know, we grew a lot. I mean, from me by myself in 2014 um, and and one other staffer added, uh, who was a great, great hire, really, really happy, took a, a huge load, a huge burden off my plate, but I knew exactly what that person needed to do. And they were able to take the burden off my plate. And it really, really helped. It helped so much that I was able to grow enough to hire another person at the beginning of 2015. 
And that was my first marketing director. Actually, uh, Rick holds that position. Uh, Blake was the the guy and Rick, you took over for him, uh, you know, many, many years ago now. And, Has it been uh, that long? He, he yeah. ran away. Uh, he ran away like right as I, I came in. I know. I, th- I, <laughs> I remember that. He worked, he worked for me for like three or four years and then you came in and. And then um, he, he, he left me to it. Yeah. We and should have a re- reunion. Awesome. Just bring him back and have a chat with him. See how he, <laughs> see how he's doing. We're still friends. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so, you know, but uh, Blake, he suggested that we bring on people. Uh, so we, we brought on an intern and we brought on a content writer and um, a uh, uh, another, actually the intern eventually came, uh, it was our web developer. I wasn't quite sure what the intern should do. And then the second one is the content writer. I wasn't sure how much output they should be, you know, like what, what, I mean, I, I know that I'm paying this amount for 40 hours of work, but how much output do they need to produce? Like what t- sorts of tasks do they need to do in order to make sure that that is profitable for the country and sus- uh, a company and sustainable, right? Sustainable is probably the operative word. Mm-hmm. And um, eventually we, we actually cut both the intern position and the, the, the copywriter position because we were able to just outsource certain things like copywriting. We're able to outsource for dirt cheap compared to, you know, and, and get, the, I mean, it was obviously the quality suffered, but it didn't really matter. Like the the type of the type of outsourcing that we needed, you know, the lower quality was absolutely fine. It wasn't like we were doing a ghostwriting, you know, for a book or 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 anything like that. that that's um, another thing I just want to point back to this interview, which I'll include in the show notes. But one one thing Gabe was saying was that at this time, a lot of gaming studios were trying to outsource staff and get it as cheap as possible. Like find some, you know, go to India and get you know customer mm-hmm. service to be done and what they decide to do is the exact opposite they would actually mm-hmm. find the most qualified and pay the most money to have the most qualified staff so that's what that's the r- path they went down i think it's, it's paid mm-hmm. off in the long run um so again i think there that there's definitely value in finding people who are diligent yeah. motivated and that can make a they can i think they can make or break your, your company i i fully agree back to mythic i think that they scaled up with Darkest Dungeon to staff amounts that they could not sustain with their cash flow. But because of a very comfy cushion in the bank account they re- and, the, and their reliance on future Kickstarters that the team was working on to, to bring in the money, that was where they, they kind of ran into problems. They eventually, because they couldn't sustain their growth, they ended up doing what the, uh, the adage is, they ended up robbing Peter to pay Paul. That was where they had to kind of take funds from the Darkest Dungeon campaign, let's say, which they uh, did fulfill, I believe. But that kind of took all their money, all the rest of their money. But they took money from the Darkest Dungeon campaign to put into the Six Siege, the rest of the art and other things like that. But then eventually the money started running out. So they had to take the Anister funds and the Monster Apocalypse funds that came after Six Siege to actually pay for the manufacturing and other things like that of Six Siege. And eventually it like the the money ran out, but the responsibility of fulfilling games, you know, it was not completed. So they have multiple games that they have not fulfilled and they didn't have enough money to send out Six Siege. So I'm I'm concerned about Monster Apocalypse and Anister, which mm-hmm. are two uh games that they have yet to 
um, talk about how they're going to fulfill. As far as as far as I know, I don't know the plan. You know, just yeah. being frank, I'm not sure what the plan is. Yeah, I don't. I don't think the issue is that they, you know, they they crowdfunded a game and then you know they had some problems. The issue is they crowdfunded multiple games and now have problems on multiple games. Um, and then of course, like you said, they had it. You know, they're they're probably taking funds from one game to pay another. Um, and then on top of that, like you said earlier, you know, when you put the funds in the bank, it doesn't really sit there. It, you know, you have all these charges and things that are going on that, you know, so that, that money is dropping at all times, especially if they have a staff, you know, working on all that. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, like you said, like big, the big thing I've, I've been seeing is monster apocalypse is everyone's really concerned about that. Cause they have no idea what's going on. Um, and then of course they also asked, you know, for people to, to pay more money, uh, for a game to get it to go through after they've already pledged and whatnot. So yeah, there's a lot of uh, uh, things going on, and I think it's just going to be like one big uh, hate to say it, but I think it's going to be one big Enron crash, where it's just going to be boom and they're done. Right, and it feels like um, you know it's 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 tough because again, like my my source is very, uh, you know, all the people in fact that uh, I talk to that have had a working relationship with Mythic Games uh, speak very highly of them. But I think that it's it's a matter of not course correcting quickly enough, maybe. I, I feel like they took risks that didn't pay off in the end, but they did not course correct fast enough. So, you know, stop the bleeding earlier by not hiring as much staff or not taking on as many projects at, at once. Um, I, I talked about, you know, my in, in my post, I actually talked about how uh, my conclusion is that the, the money that I earned allows me to effectively work on one great game at a time. I'm working on the deliverance expansion right now. And that's, that's something that we're, you know, working really hard. Uh, it's actually the next two expansions, but you know, it's basically creating the one expansion and then there's overflow content that is going to be used in the second expansion and, and whatnot. But we have a clear plan. We're, we're working toward that, that Kickstarter and, you know, and everything. Um, and then, in addition to that, I'm working on uh, channels to sell the you know roughly 1,800 copies of Deliverance or so that are remaining. I think it's like 1,600 that are that are remaining, and um, hopefully the 900 T-shirts that I sold will and uh, the thousands of games that I sold will help me sell the rest. But if not, we have contingency plans to put stuff on Amazon, to put stuff up on our website, and run Facebook ads and. Uh, pay for reviewers and other things like that that will we can tap into their audiences and, and so on. But if I were to work two games though, I don't think I could do. I think it would break me. You know, I think working a second game would just suck all the funds out, and I wouldn't even be able to make it to the Kickstarter of the Deliverance expansion, yeah. let alone finish it. I was just gonna say that uh, you know if you if you want to become a game company. It's it's a continuous. You're continuously have to work on something. For example, like you said right now, you're working on even though you know in and behind the scenes the games being man, the original games being manufactured and you know things you're, you're getting all that logistics done. You're already working on the expansion. In fact, I've I've seen you know other people do the same thing. And of course, the the, the other thing is you have to sort of balance your backers because all of a sudden your backers are like, wait, you're making an expansion, but I still haven't got my original game yet. And so you have that also that perspective where you have to constantly be working ahead to keep going. But at the same time, you know, you, you know, you have to deal with like things like that where, where perception is, is completely different than, than the outcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
so when all is said and done, you need to pay off your debts, be in it for the long game, and be very careful when hiring staff. Those are the three takeaways from this episode. We wish you the best in your crowdfunding journeys, and we hope that this never happens to you and never happens to anyone. Uh, this is not great news, but hopefully you can learn something from maybe other people's mistakes or other people's catastrophic success, and that you can apply some principles here that will safeguard you in the future from going down a similar path. Something can become catastrophic success in hindsight, but you might be prepared for it at the time, or, or think you are. It's, it's, a, it's a scary world. Business is not an easy thing, is it? But it sure is satisfying when it works. And that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. And if you enjoyed this episode and you want to check out some other ones, visit our actually our really new new remodeled website at crowdfundingnerds.com. You can also check out um, our services as well as our lovely online course that we have as well. And if you have some quest burning questions that you need an answer to, Check out our Facebook group, Crowdfunding Nerds Community. Just do a, do a search for Crowdfunding Nerds Community and you'll find us. There are a couple of questions you have to answer to get in, but they promise they won't, they won't bite you too hard. Uh, <laughs> and until then, of course, you know, stay cool and stay nerdy.